weeks. And so if you haven't been here, what I'd like to do is give a little bit of a, of a uh, reminder of what's going on. And then we'll read the text and, and pray. So as we've been going through the book of Judges, we've seen these different judges or deliverers that God would raise up in the life of Israel. And as he raises them up, they come... And they, the people of Israel are generally in some kind of oppression uh, from another country because of sin or another group of people because of sin. And so they repent or they, they ask for help. God raises up one of these redeemers or rescuers or judges. They come and rally the folks and they fight against their oppressor. And after they defeat them, uh, they have a time of peace where the, ju- ju- the judge will generally pass away. And there's a time of peace that's brought until that time of peace ends because the people of Israel decide to go back into sin. Uh, and whenever they go back into sin, then an oppressor comes in and they don't like the oppressor. So they call out to God and God will send them a judge. The judge will come and help them and bring them out of the oppression. And then they'll have a time of peace until the judge dies. And then they'll go back further into sin. And every time they go back into sin, they go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And every time they bring a judge, the judge is a little bit worse than the other uh, in regard to his character, etc. So um, that's, that's what we're looking at the book of Judges. And you, it progresses on, on and on and on. People get worse, progressively worse. The judges get progressively worse. All in all, <clears throat> that brings us to the very end of the book where it says the people just, because they had no king, did what was right in their own eyes. And we know as humans, that's a bad idea for us to do what's right in our own eyes. We're not inherently good. We're inherently evil and we need a redeemer. And so the whole point as they get to the book of Judges is they need a king to show them, which the larger por- portion of the whole entire meta narrative is we need a king because we're just like them. We need King Jesus to be our savior to uh, save us. And so we've been looking at uh, the book of Judges here and we're, we're looking at the life of Jephthah. Um, in chapter 11, they were oppressed by the Ammonites and uh, <clears throat> he eventually led... Um, and almost in spite of him, God led uh, Israel to be uh, saved from the hand of the Ammonites. Uh, but we do know that Je- Jephthah made this tragic vow where uh, he said, the next thing that comes out of the door, I'll sacrifice to you. And it ended up being his own daughter, uh, his only child he had. And so he had to keep the vow and uh, he gave her over uh, to be killed. And then you can see in chapter 11, verse 32, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hands. So he did eventually defeat the Ammonites and then you get to chapter 12. So which is where we are. So let's read the text together. We can stand if you're able. Starting at chapter 12, we're gonna read uh, what happens after the defeat of the Ammonites. What we're looking at here basically, um, and this is unprecedented, um, this is, Poor leadership by Jephthah, no doubt. Uh, a civil war. A war within Israel, which is, which is bad. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim, that's fellow Israelites, were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon. And they said to Jephthah, why didn't you cross over to fight? Uh, why, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and not call us to go with you? We'll burn your house over, you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute. The my people is the Gileads. They're all part of Israel. Had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you could not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck 
Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Estram, you Gileads, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileads captured the fords of Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when the and when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for they could not pronounce it right. And when he, so they had, a, they had to test him. And when he seized, uh, and they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. This is at the hand of their own brothers, the Gileads. Verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years, and Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in his city in Gilead. We'll keep reading the rest of the chapter. After him, Isben of Bethlehem judged Israel, and he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave marriage outside of his clan, and the daughters he brought from outside for, for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years, and Isben died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. The, then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ijon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pithionite, judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on seven donkeys, and he judged Israel for eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, of the Pithionite, died and was, died and was buried at Pithion in the land of Ephraim in the country of the Amalekites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we... I, we need a special measure of your spirit this morning as we examine a tough text. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come now and bring uh, all of the things we're going to learn this morning uh, to bear on our souls as we see brothers all in Israel together fighting that we would learn the lessons from this. Put all our hope in Christ. And God, that you would come and you would rescue us from our own selves. This is a crucial text this morning for the church in America. I pray that we would be used by you to reflect your good grace and what the family of God should look like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we've been looking at Jephthah, and God has worked <clears throat> mainly in spite of Jephthah, not necessarily because Jephthah's great. He was not great. Uh, you can see there at the end of or the middle of chapter 12, verse 7, Jephthah judged six years. This is a very short time. This is a very short time. He did not uh, serve a very long time. I think the reason why he, he lists out Isban, Elon, and Abdon is to let us see that they served uh, seven years, ten years, and eight years, all longer than Jephthah. Jephthah gets a lot more narrative, but Jephthah served a tiny little portion to let us know just how tragic of a figure he was. He only served six years. If you've been here for a while, uh, you see that at the end of every time, it says, and then there was peace among Israel after, it always says, for 30 years, for 20 years, for 40 years, etc. Nothing listed here. He didn't bring peace. They fought the Ammonites. They defeated the Ammonites. But at the end, there's no peace because he brings a civil war inside of Israel. So he's not a great guy. One uh, commentator kind of talking about this last group of people. He says that the accounts of the second group of people, which are Gideon, Jephthah, and now Samson after this starting next week. 
of this second group are more extensive and detailed. They provide more intimate glimpses of these characters about the judges and convey negative evaluations about the aspect of their activity. In this last regard, it is particularly interesting to note that each narrative of the cycle of the second group ends with grievous tragedy. So as we see Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, we're, we're seeing that, as I said, they get progressively worse. These <clears throat> particular people are going to end with grievous tragedy. Gideon sows the seeds of fresh apostasy and sires Abimelech, whose reign of terror will, ba- will bathe Ebiezer in his own blood. Jephthah's success comes at the high price of the sacrifices of his only child and daughter and brings civil war. And then Samson, as we will start next week, flippantly, self-sufficiently, has already prepared the reader for the sight of his mutilated body and the discovery of his corpse among the rubble of Gaza, Gaza's temple. The contrast of these three-plus patterns, especially with this general movement of positive-negative overtones, fits perfectly with the scheme of progression of disintegration. So we see, as we're going through the book of Judges, now we're, we're getting into worse, worse leadership, worse and worse consequences. And in chapter 12, we see the consequence of Jephthah, which is he actually brings civil war. Another commentator about this man, Jephthah, says, This egotistical man proves himself the consummate manipulator who opportunistically seizes power over his tribesmen, bargains with God, victimizes his daughter, brutalizes his own fellow Israelites. The placement of this narrative within the book suggests that all of, of all the other deliverers named to this point, Jephthah represents the ethical and spiritual low point. Perhaps most reprehensible of all of his pagan or at least semi-pagan features, he stooped to the despicable act of offering his own daughter as a whole burnt offering to a deity to achieve his goal. He may have been a governor, a head, a commander, and a leader in Israel, but he never cared about the people he governed, nor about the God to whom they belong. So here we see Jephthah's not a great guy, but he's going to have this dispute with the Ephraimites, equally not great people. The Ephraimites historically felt like they must dominate. They must be the people out of all the tribes that everybody thinks awesome. They need to be the one that need to be called on. That's why they come and say, why don't you call us? They need to be in control. They need to be recognized. And so you've got two bad groups coming up and it's just a recipe for disaster. Now, I want to preface all this with a text in uh, Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter four, my... uh, Seminary professor used to read this over and over and over and over. It was pastoral ministry over and over. And I wasn't even going to be a pastor at the time. So I'd be like, oh, he's always reading this. I just want to be a youth minister, you know, jet ski and have fun. Why does he keep reading this? And he had, I mean, he was, he had been in ministry for 40 something years and he would read it over and over and over and over. And now being a pastor for 10 years, I see why it is that he read this. And I'm not, I'm not in this sermon trying to indict remedy. I think this is an indictment of the church in North America. This is what he says. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 1. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. So he tells the church, whenever you're talking to each other, whenever you're interacting with each other, and con- he's not saying don't be like them, but I'm saying don't be like Judges 12. Don't be like Jephthah and don't be like the Ephraimites and fight with each other and, 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 and try to be better. But instead, when you interact with each other, do it in humility, do it in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here it is, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The church should be eager to maintain unity eager to maintain unity. And so what we're looking at here in chapter 12 then, whenever they don't 
maintain unity within Israel are the negative consequences that happen when division comes, when their own people. Uh, these won't be on the screen. I just want you to listen. I just want you to listen. There's going to be negative consequences of division. When division came in Israel, negative things start happening. I want you to see them. Look at verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms. They crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? Did not call us to go with you. Automatically, Ephraimites assume you didn't call us and so you don't like us. They assume, number one, the first negative consequence of division is the group assumes both parties, both sides of this group assume the worst motives of each other in any situation. They assume the worst motives. It could be that they just didn't call them for good reason. We don't know. It's not in the text. But we, nevertheless, what we can see implicitly with the question is, you didn't call us, and so the worst possible motives have to be attributed to you because you didn't call us. We know it's true. It's the worst possible reason that could it be. Why didn't you call us? The Ephraimites, as I said, feel like they almost dominate, they must be controlled, they must be recognized. And so, therefore, since that's the case, they assume the worst about Jephthah and the Gileads when they went out to war. And their own, their own sin of pride caused them to project onto Jephthah and Gilead the worst possible, possibly untrue motives. You just didn't want us to go because, fill in the blank, why didn't you call us? They assume the worst motives of Jephthah. And when there's division inside the group, when there's division, dislike causes both parties to assume that all decisions that are made by each group are always out of bad motives. They're always out of bad motives. They can't just think there's probably a good reason. And when that happens, rather than assume good, mo good motives and talk about things rationally, logically, and calmly, they assume the worst and they never, ever talk. And it just perpetuates division perpetuates division on and on and on because we assume, we assume, they assume the worst of someone's motives. That's not good. You're not, you're not uh, when you're doing that, eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so here we see a negative consequence is any and all actions, we assume the worst here. The second thing you can see is this. When that happens, why didn't you call us? Then, then they say, we're gonna burn your house over with fire. They throw out angry threats to each other. Um, you can also see in verse 3, it says, uh, I took my life on my hand, crossed over for the Ammonites, and the Lord said, when you've come up this day, we're going to fight against me. So we see that they're threatening to fight, and they're threatening, now we do know they eventually fight, but here they're threatening to burn each other's houses down, and they're th threatening to fight each other. So uh, another, another consequence of division is the group retaliates Whenever these decisions, we assume the worst motive, and therefore, since we assume the worst motive, they retaliate towards each other with angry threats towards each other, rather than doing what Christ says, turn the other cheek. Matthew 5, verse 39. But I say, do you not resist the one who, um, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And so Jesus has told us that when this happens, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. We don't just assume and we don't, certainly don't lash out with angry threats towards each other. When a community is called together to be a body and a family, retaliating in anger or with angry threats towards each other never brings unity. It never brings unity. Instead, we must look to Jesus, the only one that brought unity between God and man to then therefore bring unity between man and man. 
If he can restore unity between the deity who has all righteous anger towards man because of our sin, if he can restore that, as it says, bringing peace by his death on the cross, then he certainly has the ability to bring peace between man and man. Retaliatory threats, retaliatory angry threats towards people in your community are serious killers to unity. They're serious killers. And then verse 2, it says, Jephthah said to him, after they threaten each other, fight and burn each other's houses down. Uh, verse 2, he says, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I called you, you did not save me from their hand. What we don't know here, what we don't know and what's not explicit in the text for sure, is that Jephthah called. We don't know that he called. He may have. We don't know. He's not, he, this is... This is a, a, a text narrative telling us what he said. So it's not saying that it surely happened. It's saying that he said it happened. So we don't know. Maybe he did. He's not the greatest guy, so he could be lying here. But we also, what we don't know is, if he really did call, if the, uh, the Ephraimites just decided not to go. They could just say, you didn't call us. Why didn't you call us? But they really did. What we don't, what the thing is, is that we don't know. And so we don't know for sure on either side who did what. And so since we don't know, we're not going to impugn anybody here. We just, we just don't know, right? But what we can do is we can keep going and see what happens. Verse 3, And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand. I took my life in my hand. In other words, Ephraim knew, uh, Jephthah knew Ephraim was one of the strongest clans. Like they, they were strong in war. And he didn't call them to, to, to help. The people that could have helped and really been a help he didn't call. So the third consequence, negative consequence of division is the group quits depending on each other for help. They quit depending on each other. This is not how we're supposed to live in community. But someone that really could have helped could have been Ephraim. And if they hadn't been fighting, he could have called somebody that really could have brought real help. He says, I took my life in my hand. I didn't depend on you. I decided to do it all myself. This is not living in community. I took my life. They quit doing life together. And we're supposed to live life in community, practicing all the one another's. And we're, he said, we're not going to practice the one another's. I'm not going to depend on you for help anymore. I'm not going to live in community. You're not going to give me any more help. I don't want your help. The, per, the people that really could have helped at that time, that God had, when he, when he formed the 12 tribes, the Ephraim, Ephraim was strong. And they decided to say, the people that can't help me, I don't want to help anymore. And this is bad. This is a bad negative consequence of division is whenever you stop living in community and you stop uh, using your community, not using in a bad sense, but depending on your community for help. The consequence of not doing life with them anymore is that they gave up pursuing unity with them. Tim Keller says this, if we spent as much time pursuing unity and overlooking insults within our churches as we do seeking to remain on good terms with the world, our communities would be far less divided and far more loving. And the clear directive from God is that we're supposed to do life together. We don't want to just pursue unity with the world. We want to pursue unity in our community, in our churches. And there should never be a time where we aren't looking towards each other for help. We should never stop depending on each other in our church. We should never stop depending on each other and asking for help in our communities. And if there's a div division that comes in, that's going to happen. We won't be the church. We won't be the church. A negative consequence of this, of course, is that we start, stop looking at each other for help. You can keep going. You can see another one in verse 
4, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. This is Israel fighting Israel. This is Gilead fighting Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim. So the men of Gilead were mad because Ephraim said to them, You are fugitives of Ephraim. One commentator I was reading said that this was even a racial slur. Nevertheless, it's certainly a put down. Ephraim's looking at Gilead and saying, You're the riffraff. You're the, you're the people that are, are bad in our, in our whole thing. We don't even like you. And we know, as you look at the end of verse 6, at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. 42,000, that's a lot. 42,000 of their own brothers of Israel were slaughtered. This is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. So the fourth thing that we see, the negative consequences of division is when the group fights with each other, it causes most of the time, irreparable, permanent damage. I'm not saying Jesus can't, can't heal stuff, okay? I'm not saying Jesus can't, I'm saying I know Jesus can over, overcome anything. I get that. I do believe that. But in this case, with these people, the defeat of Ephraim, 42,000, brought irreparable, permanent damage to Ephraim. Leon Morris says uh, on this irreparable permanent damage, the decimation of the tribe of Ephraim was decisive for this tribe never regained its preeminence. If you read Psalm 78 at at the end where it's kind of given this big history of Israel, it says he rejected the tent of Joseph and he didn't choose Ephraim. Instead, he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Now from eternity, God, that was his plan, right? But nevertheless, in Psalm 78, the immediate, it tells us, Ephraim was not chosen, therefore Judah was. It brought irreparable permanent damage to Ephraim because of this. This decimation was permanent for them. They sling racial slurs by calling them fugitives of Ephraim. And Jephthah does something that he was never ever told to do by God. He was told to defeat the Ammonites, the people that aren't Israel. And he goes and he fights a civil war against Ephraim. This is why when it's at the very end, he served six years, he didn't bring peace. He was not a good leader. He does something horrific. His bad behavior towards his own people is absolutely awful. With his enemies, he was just diplomatic for a while. With his enemies, he would try to be peaceful for a while. Tim Keller says this, but here he doesn't hesitate to strike out at those within God's people who oppose him. He treats God's people far worse than he does himself or even the world. And the truth is we're not so different. That's what Keller says. The church should be marked by love towards its own people. We shouldn't be more, we should be patient, no doubt, with people outside the church. We should be diplomatic. But equally so, how much more so with our own people? We shouldn't be nice and kind and diplomatic to outside the church and strike out our own. Never. Instead, we should be equally, if not more so, to our own brothers and sisters. May the Holy Spirit fill us to love each other well. And then we see this last thing. The fugitives of Ephraim, 
uh, is what they call them. Verse 5, And the Gileads captured the fords of Jordan and set up against the Ephraimites. And when the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over. So after the, that war was over, there's, there's some stragglers of Ephraimites left over and they're trying to get back to their homeland. And Gilead sets this big, huge kind of trap over this one place. And the, and the way to get back is through here. And they say, and, and Gilead knows, they can't say uh, Shibboleth. They, they just say Sibboleth. They, they can't do shh. For some reason, they, they're not able to do it. So we have the one little word that we know that, that we can trap them with. And here it says, they say, let me go over. And he goes, are you an Ephraimite? And they're like, no, 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 I'm not Ephraimite. Because you've already kind of defeated everybody. And we, I know if I say I'm an Ephraimite, you're going you're gonna to kill me. So nope, not an Ephraimite, not one. Oh yeah? Okay, say, sh- say Shibboleth. Shibboleth. Oh, nope, sorry, we got you. You're an Ephraimite. You can't say the word. You can see it here. They, they, say, they say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and they slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan. At that time, 42,000. What's happening inside this group? The group creates an extra litmus test to really be in the group. They create an extra litmus test. If you can say this word, you can be in our group. Oh, you can't. You're dead. And if we're not careful, the church does the same thing. We have one test and only but one test to be in our church, to be in the church. Faith in Jesus Christ. It's not faith in Jesus Christ plus you agree with me on these things. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. The rank of importance for Jephthah is Jephthah, Gilead, Israel. And so he displayed a willingness to sacrifice anything and anyone for his own number one ambition himself. He knows no bounds. This can't be the case for the church. This can't be the case for the church. The church must seek unity, as we've read in Ephesians. And a way to do this is simply by flipping over one book from Ephesians, looking at Philippians chapter 2, where it says, chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We don't just look to our own interests, but instead, We look to the interests of others. And so we're not supposed to be Jephthah, Gilead, Ephraim. We're supposed to be Jesus, others, then yourself. Uh, This is a devotion I used to, this may be cheesy, all right? But just bear with me here. Uh, Whenever I was at Camp McCall, I wanted to give a devotion. You got to do it real quick. I would tell them how to have joy. How to have joy is is to rank yourself in this life. Jesus, others, yourself. That brings you true joy. J, Jesus, Oh, others, why yourself? If you want to really have joy, then that's the way you live your life. Not me, then Gilead, and then Ephraimites, whoever else. It's Jesus first, others next, then me. He didn't live with joy. He didn't put not only to his own needs, but to the others. He created litmus tests for, for people to really be included in the group. We do this when we think, uh, when we do this, <coughs> uh, like Philippians says, we count others also just as significant as ourselves, then we don't create these secondary litmus tests to be in the family of God. There's only one thing, faith in Jesus Christ with his death on the cross for the forgiveness forgiveness of our sins. That's the only test there is. Recently, Tristan, my son's been praying. Uh, He loves to pray. And whenever uh, he gets mad, if anybody else gets to pray, he insists that everybody close their eyes. Dad, make sure JC's closing her eyes while I pray right now. JC, please just close your eyes. We all want to eat. We're all starving. 
So we all close our eyes and he prays, dear Lord, thank you for the food and help me put my face in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And he says all the time, he doesn't say faith, he says face. I want to put my face in Jesus. And it's just because we've said, talked about having our, putting our faith in Jesus. He's just picked it up and he hasn't heard the right, word right. And he says face in Jesus. And I think that's pretty funny. Tristan, you're awesome. Um, but in a similar sense, in a, in a way as you think about it, he's really kind of on to something, right? He's on to something. That we do put our faith in Jesus for salvation. But after that, we put our face into Jesus for the rest of our life if we actually want to reflect Christ and live as the church and live with peace and unity. If we take our face away from Jesus and put it into ourselves or anything else, then we start reaping the benefits, negative benefits of this. And we see uh, we, don't, we don't operate as a church family the way we should. We don't, we don't live a life of sanctification as we should. Instead, we, we do things like create second exterior litmus tests in order to really be a part of the group, things like that. And so we, we must, as Tristan says, <laughs> the, my great theologian son, three-year-old, not just put our faith in Jesus, but put our face into Jesus. Press hard into knowing him and following him. Believe in him and then never stop looking towards Christ to show us how to live a life of, of uh, honor and worship and glory towards him. So as we, as we keep going, um, we can see what happens here. They killed 42,000 of the Ephraimites in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in the city in Gilead. He only served as a judge for six years. He brought no peace and he died childless. Just a tragic, tragic story of a man. Now, in 1132, so Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites and fought against them and the Lord gave them into his hand uh, against the enemy. The am enemy, the Ammonites, whom God said to bring, they were defeated. But this salvation that was brought to Israel was not perfect. It was not perfect at all. Jephthah was only a man and could not bring perfect salvation. Uh, he was despised and rejected by many. That's the only similarity that Jephthah has with Jesus. <laughs> that's it. Other than that, there's not very, that's Isaiah 53. There's not other many similarities. He is wholly different than Jesus. He was not a good judge. He did not bring peace in Israel. Instead, after he brought this relative peace against the Ammonites, he immediately brings in a civil war, resulting in Ephraim losing 42,000 people. This is far from a perfect salvation for Israel. The writer, as he's, as he's finishing Jephthah, finishing this tragic life of Jephthah, he's intentionally, whoever this writer is, is intentionally wanting us to see that only one person can give Israel perfect salvation. And it's not Jephthah and it's not any judge. Instead, it's only Jesus. Jesus is the one that can bring perfect salvation to us because he died on the cross to forgive all of our sins. He's the one that can restore relationships between man and man. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is describing a division that has happened between the Jews and the Greeks. And he points to how only God can bring, uh, bring together these two particular people. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, of the household of God. 
He tells them that God has brought them together. Massive division in the New Testament between Jews and, and Gentiles. And he says that you're now members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I just want to point out a couple things that Paul is saying to them. He says that as they come together and they form the church, Jews and Gentiles, he says that they are fellow members, verse 19, that they are fellow members of the same household of God. Same household of God. He's not saying that you're fellow members of the same neighborhood. Because you know what? If I don't like somebody in my neighborhood, at every night I can just go right back to my house and they can go to their house and they, they, we don't see each other for a while. I can intentionally not hang out with them as much as I want. We might be in the same neighborhood. We might be in the same city, but it's no big deal. But he says you're in the same household. You can't turn that off. If someone is in your household, then you're going to see them. And so therefore you need to love them. And what he's saying is, is that in verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints and members of the same household of God. And so it's, a tr it's tr the same is true for us, that we are all members of the same household. That's why we strive to maintain unity in the body and the bond of peace. Since we're all in the same household, we have to live together. And since we have to live together, we are to look to Christ, as Tristan says, put our face in Jesus and therefore love each other well because we're in the same family. We're in the same household. And then Jesus says, since we're in the same family, we all have the same dad. And we all have the same dad. Then we ever, never, ever should have division ever. When we do have division, these kinds of things happen in, in chapter 12 of Judges. We assume the worst of each other. We retaliate with angry threats. We quit depending on each other. We cause irreparable permanent damage. And we create extra litmus tests for people to really be invited into our group. All those things are an abomination. An abomination in God's church. Instead, we are to Look towards Jesus, the only one that brings perfect salvation, the only one that brings perfect restoration, and let him inform us as a church how we are to live, that not only look to our own interests, but to the interests of others, that we are to be humble, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read it one more time as we close. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the way that we are supposed to live our lives in light of the gospel, because these things have been provided to us by Jesus. We are to, with all humility with gentleness, with patience. We bear with one another in love. When it says bear with one another, this means forgive. It doesn't just mean like, oh, I'll put up with you and if you're in the room. <laughs> it's instead, if you sinned against me, I'm going to forgive you in love. The same way that Christ, when we sin against him, forgives us, we are also going to do, do the same thing. Because we're all part of the same family and we all have the same dad, we're going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. Now, I started from the beginning and saying, I'm not indicting Remedy Church here. I am saying the church in North America is in dangerous, dangerous business of not uh, being obedient to a, 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And so let's be a city on a hill here at Remedy. Let's be different than the norm. Let's be unified around Christ and the gospel and him only. Let's love each other as brothers and sisters. Let's not create extra litmus tests to say, you got to be a part of this family if you're this too. It's you're a believer in Jesus, you're a part of the family. Let's be different than the majority of churches in America. I'm not saying they're bad. I love them too. I want them to do the same thing and I want us to do it. Let's not have negative consequences to where brothers and sisters fight with each other. Instead, let's love each other well, reflect Christ and be about the Lord's business and obeying the, good, the great commission in Matthew 28. Loving each other, reaching the, this city for the gospel and doing community mission and care for the glory of God together. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray that anything and everything I've said this morning that has remotely come across as anything other than humble, that you would work in, in, in spite of it. These are, my, these are my brothers and sisters whom I love. And if I could sit with them and have someone else talk, I would just sit happily with them as one who needs to listen with them. I don't put myself on one side of the room and them on the other, and they all need to hear me. I'm, I'm, I'm just as much needing to hear this as them. Lord, I love you. We love you. And we need the Holy Spirit to come, not just to us, but to the church in North America and bring unity among us. We don't want to end up like Jephthah and the Ephraimites. We want to depend on each other. We want to love each other, each other enough to ask for help. God, please bring unity to the church in North America. We know that you can do this. You're good. Thank you for Jesus, our only hope, who brought peace between God and man and therefore can bring peace between man and man, especially brothers and sisters of Christ. May we be different. May we be a city on a hill. May we be wholly different than the world. Help us be bold as we offer their only hope, Jesus, to them. Help us be about the Father's business. Loving each other well. Caring for each other deeply. Being humble. Bearing with one another in love. And eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All this made available because of Jesus on the cross. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.